Welcome to Straight Edge, the podcast. My name is Clive Allwright, and along with my amazing guests and co-hosts, we're going to be having some brutally honest and sometimes confronting conversations around all things of addictive behavior. Now, as it happens, I've been a hairdresser for 37 years, and during my career, I've met many people just like me that have also struggled in the many different areas of addiction. So our main focus of this podcast is to chat with as many people as possible from the hairdressing, barbering, and media industries, along with some pretty smart people that work in the fields of addiction to get a deeper understanding of why so many of us struggle with the balance of family, careers, health, and the day-to-day pressures of life. So if this sounds like an area you'd like to dive deeper into, make a cup of tea, sit back, and listen to Straight Edge, the podcast. So when I was younger and I was really messed up and in such emotional pain and confused, I didn't go and see a shrink because I thought they're never going to be able to unpack this. We'd drink during the day and then we'd drink all the way home. It was like the best of times and the worst of times. Overpowering feeling that I was going to die. But it felt really real, like maybe I'm going to walk in front of a tram by accident. Maybe I'll get stabbed because I can't look after myself because I'm in blackouts. I'm so much more healthy. I've done so much work on myself. I understood so much more about myself. Hello and welcome to another episode of Straight Edge, the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Clive and I will be your host for today and I'll be flying solo in the host chair um, due to the fact that it's school holidays, as we mentioned on the last episode. And Amy has bravely taken her kids uh, camping for, for the weekend, well, from today. And Lou is snowed under with deadlines for the magazine. Um, so for very selfish reasons, I'm, I'm, I'm in the studio today with my guest and I'm very excited to speak to this guest because I feel like I've been on a deep dive into this person's life it's funny how things crop up in our lives um when I first got sober one of my good friends and clients Lolly said to me she goes oh you should read my friend's book she said Jenny she's written this book called Women of Substances and she said um you should get it so I got the book and I started reading it and it was amazing it sort of Jen my guest is an incredible writer and sort of took me back to my childhood in the 80s, um, back in the UK. Um, anyway, things progressed. And then I started listening to the audio book and I was down the beach one day and I thought, I've got to get in contact with this person because I was halfway through the book and it's, it's captivating with all the facts and figures and insights into the world of addiction i guess it's an autobiography and or a memoir as such but filled with with bits and pieces so my guest today is jenny valentish who is not only she's just written four books um one of which is women of substance substances sorry she's a muay thai um boxing participant champion whatever <laughs> a bodybuilder also another fellow podcaster with her partner frank uh, which is spirit levels if you haven't heard it it's fabulous it's uh, it's my new addiction to listen to you guys so it's amazing and uh, you're super fit as well jenny as in regards to fit physical fitness that was a bit bit something weird by the way i was going to say um so welcome to the show today jenny how are you Oh, I'm so good after that. Thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I did all right. I did all right until I got to the end. I'm like, and you're super fit. That just sounded weird. Anyway. <laughs> oh no, no, I let that go. No, I, I let that hang there on purpose. Uh, but I've got to tell you, I um, 
as I mentioned, I was down at a place in Sydney called Gordon's Bay doing my Sunday morning ocean swim, and I was halfway through your book, and it's just, I mean, it's 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 confronting. It is, there's no stone left unturned. It's your story of your going up from your childhood and going right through of being a writer, a journalist, and writing for various different, you know, Rolling Stone and music publications and your journey with alcohol. I mean, if I may, there's everything in there. There's addiction to speed. There's, you know, there's ADHD. There's there's really some confronting stuff in there as well, um, which I'll probably... Don't forget the crack, crack cocaine. cocaine, you know. Thank There's you. the situation that happened after the Reading Music Festival in the laneway of the hotel. Yeah. And, you know, um, so anyway, I'm not going to rub it on anymore. I'm just going to say, so tell us a little bit about it. How did you come out about writing this book? It's, 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 it's captivating. Oh, well, I put it off for about 10 years because um, mainly because of family. And I teach memoir now, and that is the main thing that people are stuck on how do I do this without upsetting family um but I wrote about 100,000 words when I first got sober which was um 2009 and I didn't really use any of that because that was just that was just they call it writing from the wound rather than the scar and it's all like shaped by resentment it's all like you're mind blown at being in this strange new world of recovery, which for me at the time was AA. So I was full of AA speak. Um, and so it was a very different beast. And then I just thought, okay, you've got that out of your system, put it away. Over the years, I had an agent and I was going, could I make it a novel? And she was going, no, no, everyone wants a memoir. I was like, okay, what about a research book? So I really want to like work in neuroscience and, and you know, why are people addicted? I'm fed up of just reading, uh, you know, addiction memoirs where, it's just the person's story to sobriety and then they're sober. Like, we need something more. Why, why, why? And she said, no, we don't, we don't want research. We want your personal story. So I managed to compromise with, okay, well, let's combine my personal story with research. So actually, it would have been about seven years after I first started. I, st- I started writing it properly. Um, and I interviewed like 30 clinicians global neuroscientists, um, researchers. I crunched 30, 300 papers, as in I read 300 papers that I felt were relevant to different aspects of addiction and kind of condensed them for the layperson. Wow. And then so each, cha- each chapter's kind of got a theme, things like, you know, amateur alchemy, which is when we are trying to reach the perfect state for our own mental health, for our own well-being through drug use, that kind of thing. And then I would bring in studies that would show, you know, why people with certain disorders might be attracted to certain drugs. So it was all, all the way through. It was asking why and then using sort of entertaining stroke horrible yeah. <laughs> things from my back catalogue to illustrate the points. Yeah, it's it's, it's an amazing book. I and mean, that's one of the things that I found just so captivating about the book was, you know, <clears throat> all the way through it, you're talking to specialists within St. Vincent's Hospital here in Sydney and, you know, addiction specialists. It's, you know, um, I, and then along with some of the tales of, of you growing up in, you know, and your journey through, you know, drinking the vodka on the London Underground and and getting yourself in some some. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey because those of that haven't read the book, tell us a little bit about an insight into you know your journey as you so eloquently put in the book about your road into an, an addiction. 
Oh, well, it was, it was quite textbook, really, which is ironic because when I was younger and I was really messed up and in such emotional pain and confused, I didn't go and see a shrink because I thought they're never going to be able to unpack this. Uh, you know, it's so complex. And now I realize it's absolute textbook and they would have got it in about five seconds. Um, I mean, for a start, there, there was... Um, some childhood sexual abuse so that then sets you on a very particular path of kind of very chaotic behavior you know inability to sort of regulate your emotions uh it can be behavior that you know verges on being manipulative sometimes um I, I was a terrible thief when I was in my teens and early 20s all this sort of weird acting out behavior that was quite distressing I couldn't really understand it, it was super impulsive um I think I'll leave my family after this because I've sort yeah. of <laughs> put them through enough. But again, I think if I'd um, explained that to a psychologist as well, they probably would have got it much quicker than I thought they would have. I mean, it's fascinating. Like, like now I teach memoir. I talk to people about, hey, look up dysfunctional family roles and you'll see all the categories, all the different roles that kids fall into. And you'll just recognize your yeah. family in there straight away and everything sort of makes sense so um so anyway so for my teens and 20s in particular I, I led a very very kind of chaotic self-destructive lifestyle um to the point that I, I would never allow myself to look back on that period until the point that I wrote the book because it was too distressing yeah. I just didn't understand it I didn't make myself very popular yeah I was always hanging out in these kind of really dysfunctional tribes as well, like really heavy drinking and drug using tribes, whether it be like a squat yeah. scene or like there was this kind of really rough psychobilly scene in London I was hanging out with and the drugs would be everywhere. There'd be a lot of domestic violence or just yeah. violence. Um, and often I'd sort of come a cropper in these communities because I I, I was really young for my age. Like I, I thought I was very worldly because yeah. you know I, I made an effort to take more drugs than my peers at a young age and have I have more bad experiences than my peers and I, I hung out with more shit bags than my peers so I thought that made me like a very worldly person but I really wasn't so I was kind of like a a bit of a lamb to the slaughter a lot of the time in these communities I, I chose to hang out in and then all right. this kind of accumulates more and more bad experience so I mean I'm sure this is a familiar tale yeah, yeah. to a lot of people but it seems very isolating and like it was only me in the whole world experiencing these things at the time. that was one of the things i got from your book because it like the the drugs and the thing started from about 14 didn't it i mean it was, it was pretty hectic from a very young age even yeah 13 14 yeah and, and always alone like straight after school i was very depressed um my dad was a big drinker and i'd noticed from a very young age, he'd come straight in from work and he'd go straight to the drinks cabinet. Yeah. Like kind of putting his suitcase down on the yeah. way in. And so, of course, like your brain's going, ding, 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 what's yeah. this? And so it's interesting. My brother, who he's older, kind of went the other yeah. way and decided, no, I'm not going to be like that. But I was very intrigued by it all. Um, so, yeah, it, it did. It started very young. And, and of course, that then affects your developing little brain. Um our brain's yeah. still developing when we're sort of into our early 20s. So if you're sort of adding drugs, alcohol, cigarettes into that mix, you're shaping it in a very negative way, of course. 
Okay, so yeah, there was some amazing, well, some some crazy stories about you sort of living in different squats and and getting yourself into some crazy situations with um with various different people. Um, but you still managed to you 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 were working for Rolling Stone magazine, and you know your career as a writer was sort. Of, did did that all happen at the same time, or was it a, a very very different pathway? Well, um, I did get fired from my first job, which was my dream job, which was as, as a music publicist. Um, and it was because I was speeding all the time. And yeah. well, I thought that was a good thing to do because I was really shy, right? And speed gave me confidence and it made me like people more and it made me want to talk to them. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, my boss actually came up to me and took me aside one day and said, I can tell when you're speeding you know, because you're you're more chatty on the phone. And I thought, well, that sounds like an endorsement to me. So I'll just carry on. Um, But but I was also behaving quite erratically. And uh, I, at one point I was supposed to be getting like a raise and it didn't happen. And I went into the bathroom and I just had a bit of a fit and was pounding the walls because I had I found it really hard to control my anger back then. Yeah. And all the tiles suddenly cascaded off the walls. Um, leaving the wow. bathroom like, I just stuffed them all in my bag and left and went home for the day uh, so that was the end of that job but um generally I was you know I was also a, a talented writer so I did get lots of gigs um some full-time gigs like at guitar magazine and um I had a column for the NME uh Rolling Stone was just freelance um but yeah I did, I did get a whole lot of good gigs in the music industry and of course addiction can really hide in plain sight in the music industry it's um you're expected to drink with bands uh this was kind of the tail end of the period where if you just fell asleep under your desk at night and passed out it was the tail end of that but that was still kind of like the aura around the music industry you know it was you were the persona you had this um very heavy drinking persona and that was fine so uh, I got away with it, really. It was one of those industries where you're protected to an extent. But also, it's an industry where increasingly people were becoming sober, and that also was understood. So that became handy later. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, in, in my game, in the hairdressing game, we, you know, we'd be doing fashion weeks at different places around the world. We'd all congregate after work in whichever city you worked in, where I worked in L.A., London, Sydney, it was that scene, the fashion industry was very much similar to the music industry. It, drugs weren't just accepted, they were celebrated. A lot of this, the, the, I mean, I can remember being at Fashion Week for 4 a.m. calls in Paris and, or wherever and get out of bed sharing a room with numerous other people because budgets were tight and, you know, starting the day off with three lines of coke just to, you know, to get yourself out of bed and go, you know, and it's... It, it's it's very much like that in the music industry, isn't it? Yeah, there are just quite a few industries like that. You know, there's the hospitality industry. Yeah. Um, there's any kind of sort of production industry where you've got to work long hours. Um, but there are industries that are littered with casualties as well. Um, yeah. And increasingly, for instance, in the music industry, I've written some of these pieces. There's yeah. a lot of talk about mental health. And, you know, these people having no kind of support, like safety nets, they don't have any kind of, um, especially musicians, they don't kind of have super, they don't have health cover. Uh, So 
they don't have sick leave. So there's a real kind of spotlight on these industries now. I don't know about your industry, but talking more about mental health and how to avoid um, getting sucked into sort of behaviours that aren't doing so well for you. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I've got a client of mine. I don't know if you remember. There was a one of the major tabloids in England was they had the three AM girls. One yeah. of, one of my clients was the three was one of the three AM girls, and she was telling us the story that she was expected to be at all the major bars like the Atlantic Bar or wherever it was until the wee hours of the morning. And there were budgets for bars and drugs and things, so you could get the dirt on you know, the celebrities and go to Cannes Film Festival and just when everyone else has gone to bed, you're hanging out in the lobby with the the stars that are still partying to get the scoop for the next day. I mean, just this is a very different world, wasn't it, back in the 90s? Very yeah, different Yeah, and you just reminded me, I have spent a lot of time at the Atlantic Bar, actually, yeah. and there was always a lot of cocaine there from memory. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was his name from Blur, the, the, the singer that said he spent a million million pounds on cocaine, rode a bicycle down the stairs at the Atlantic Bar. <laughs> Jesus, it's usually Alex James when it comes to Alex blur. James, that was it. Yeah, that was yeah, it, yeah, yeah. That was it, Alex yeah, James. I couldn't remember now his name. Now he's really into cheese. He's a cheese maker. And I find I that quite that. interesting because cheese really kind of lights up the brain in the same way cocaine does, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. It does. Well, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, reading your book, it was just like this. It was, I mean, when it, you do something like... Uh, when you realise that that you've got a problem, some of the, most of the time it, it demands rigorous honesty to be honest with yourself about how bad things had got. So, you know, you did a geographical and came came to Australia, and you'd mentioned you were, I think in the book you said you were escaping sort of a domestic violence sort of situation, and came to Australia, and then you decided to get sober and get clean for around about eight years. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, by the time that happened, I had done quite a lot of rigorous work on myself already. When I moved to Australia, I thought, you've got to use this opportunity because things have not been going well for you. I was 27 when I moved, that classic shit or get off the pot age. Yeah, It's the age where if you believe in astrology, I don't, but the stars have aligned to where they were when you were born. It's the age where, you know, rock stars die. So it's this kind of age where you need to pull your socks up and decide which way you're going to go. Um, so I moved to Australia and then I slowly realized, okay, you've got to change everything about your behavior. Um, like I almost had to, I mean, I didn't have an ADHD diagnosis at this point, but I almost had to just look at everything that I've been doing, the way I would socialize, the way I would address people, the way I thought and do the opposite and see how that went. Yeah. And I, I was like saying to myself, okay, you don't understand why people misunderstand you but they do so let's just try something different and then I would try and conduct my you know my myself in the opposite ways and it was getting good responses (laughs) and so it's just like being a really late bloomer to understanding social etiquette and eventually it became instinctive so it's not something I have to put on anymore but um but still I was drinking and I just got to the situation where um, well, I was married and, uh, I, 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 it wasn't going so well, but I felt kind of stuck and, um, yeah. I'd met a, a new friend, a girlfriend who was a really heavy drinker and we would just go out 
we, I got her a job as well working with me and we would drink during the day and then we'd drink all the way home stopping at every pub and we would just kind of goad each other on and it was like the best of times and the worst of times yeah you know these crazy highs and these awful lows and kind of trying to take a big hard look at yourself yeah um and increasingly I felt this really overpowering feeling that I was going to die which was probably literally just the effect of alcohol and drugs on your nervous system. Like it depresses you, gives you a sense of fear, but yeah. it felt really real. Like maybe I'm going to walk in front of a tram by accident. Maybe I'll get stabbed because I can't look after myself because I'm in blackouts, whatever. Um, and then I just sort of had one really last bad night and I woke up and I thought I'm out of options. I've tried everything. I've tried going to see, you know, psychologists. I've tried, um, uh, antidepressants I've tried hypnotism um and nothing's working so it's either you're going to commit to this course or you're going to stop and I stopped and the acceptance was a hundred percent in every fiber of my body which made it very easy um I'm very lucky because it was just this huge relief like I know this is what I've got to do and there was no question of it so you know people talk about sobriety and you're white knuckling and it's one day at a time and I'm really lucky it wasn't like that for me I just knew with every fiber of my body this is it yeah I can relate to that that's exactly what happened to me I just I I quite often refer to it as like that scene in chariots of fire when you cross the finish when they cross the finish line and I'm like mind you it took me till I was 50 to stop but I know and I gave it every nudge possible. And after numerous attempts of trying to stop under my own steam, but I just, when I crossed that line, you know, I was like, fucking make God make it stop now. Cause I can't do this anymore. But I did like in your book when, and I, I, I was, you got to the part where you'd started to go to meetings and bits and pieces and, and you went right in the first week or I forget how many weeks it was, but you, know, you went out and you bought a house and you did this and you did that and you did <laughs> and you bought a, And I was like, oh, I, and then there's parts of your book uh, towards the end where you're like, I did rally car driving. I did this. I dro- jumped out of a plane, flew a plane, did this. And I'm like, I can fully relate to so much of this because I had so much time on my hands. And, and it's almost like that reset, isn't it? That you get in your life. Yeah. But, I mean, I should say how lucky I was because I always managed to keep my job. And at this point, I was in a decently paid job editing a magazine. Right. Hence, I was able to do these things. Like if you are, uh, you know, really marginalized and you, maybe you have kids as well and it's hard for you to get any help. Yeah. Things like the venture I did where I thought I'll try a new thing every day and I'll yeah. blog about it. That's a million miles away from what you're going to be able to do, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really appreciate exactly how lucky I am. And, you know, my book is yet another book about addiction by a white middle-class female journalist. Most yeah. of them are by white middle-class female journalists. If you look, yeah. they really yeah. are. Yeah. You don't often hear the book, you know, the, the book from the person who had nothing. Yeah. You know, and had to go to rehab again and again and again and again and lost their kids and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, and and let's be honest, it and it's you know you cover everything in your book. I mean, you really there is no stone left unturned. You know, even down to I think you said you're one of your really good friend's brother got a liver transplant, and and he wasn't able to stop drinking. Um, there's mm. there's different scenarios, and you you really do highlight the different you know the the different avenues of 
of how bad things can get. Now, one of the things that fascinated me about you was is that when I when we started talking, you said, "Look, I just want to let you know that I'm no longer sober." And I'm like, "Oh, wow!" And you went, um, "I was sober for eight years." And I know this this podcast is all about different forms of addictive behaviour, but I'm really intrigued in finding everybody's story. And obviously, mm. to someone like me, to to hear someone go through what you've been through and then decide to drink again, I'm like, "Whoa!" I d- there's no way I could personally do that, but I would. I would. I want to give you this platform to be able to explain that process. Yeah. Well, first of all, strictly speaking, I was only sober for a year and a half. And after that, I decided occasionally I would take drugs. And that was a personal choice of, I feel that if I'm putting myself under this pressure, potentially for the rest of my life, of you can't ever do anything like that again, that could could result in an explosive fallout at some point. Right. Um, and as it was, I, I very rarely did take drugs, but just knowing I was allowed to, um, made that huge, it just made it so much easier for me personally. And I'm talking things like the odd nang. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Around the five year mark, I thought I probably could drink again because, um, because I'd reordered my life to such an extent. Everything just seems so much more healthy. I've done so much work on myself. I understood so much more about myself. Um, but I didn't. I thought, why rock the boat? You know, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And then the book was about to come out. I handed in the manuscript. And I went to, like, I literally finished it on the plane to London, handed it in. And then I was in the UK meeting up with some old friends. And I just had a drink. And totally unexpected. Wow. And... My big thing to myself at that, in that moment was do not freak out. Right. Do not. Okay. Like the worst thing you can possibly do right now is spin out. Mm. So I just, for the rest of that trip, carried on and it was like not, it, it was very, very nerve wracking. Don't get me wrong. Very nerve wracking. Sometimes I found myself stopping at a pub on the way back to my mum and dad's house for a vodka going, oh, my God, fuck. And then as soon as I got back to Australia, I went to see my psychologist. He's an addiction specialist. And we talked it all through. And he's kind of of the same attitude of, ha, it's fine. Don't freak out. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so look, yeah. I, I just saw him every week and we were sort of monitoring it. And... Um, I was kind of thinking to myself, is this, this has to be self-sabotage. Your book's about to come out. Imagine right. you going on stage to talk about your book and, if, and you're slightly slurring and people going, is she mm. drunk? Wow. Uh, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. It never got out of control. I do think it was self-sabotage that it pops up at that particular moment, but I didn't then allow my brain to run with it and ruin everything. Yeah. Uh, which I know is easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because I did a year um, off my own back and then I started to drink when I was on holiday. But mine, mine unfortunately got hold of me very fast. And I, within mm. t- 24 hours, I was buying drugs overseas. It was carnage. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I listened to your podcast with you on with Sober Dave and and he, he said, he said, like, I can't. I know I can't go back there. And he said he spoke, you know, he gets, because he's a sober coach, he gets people saying, look, I've had a couple of glasses of wine 
and I felt okay. Like I did all right this weekend and within a very short space of time that they, you know, they, they, I'm in a very bad place and I need, Mm. I need some help as such. So, you know, your story I find fascinating because I mean, I guess I'm, I'm super jealous, right? The fact that you can do that. I really am. Um, because I've tried it and it just, unfortunately for me, it's just complete abstinence. I think at this stage anyway. I'd, yeah. You know. Um, but, I mean, there's a few things, right? So first of all, by this point, I was massively into sport. So yeah. I, I became a Muay Thai fighter. Yeah. That was number one priority in my life. You have no idea how much this took over my life. Like I was obsessed. I love I trained it. every day. Yeah. Uh, when I wasn't training, I was watching the videos. I was buying the gear. Yeah. The, the Muay Thai gear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, after three years, uh, I, I switched to bodybuilding. Now, these are all things you cannot do if you have a big yeah. drink, drinking issue or a hangover. Uh, yeah. and, and things had just been, my priorities had switched. Uh, but I never, I, I am very wary about talking about this too, because I remember uh, I think I think in early sobriety in particular, people don't need to hear this at all. They don't need to hear mm. about things who went back, people who went back out into the world and they were fine. Yeah. Uh, or back out of the rooms and they were fine. Yeah. Um, and I remember about a year and a half into my own sobriety and AA and stuff, two friends of mine who are also sober, they're a couple, they said, oh, we went to a wedding at the weekend and we had a beer each and it was fine. And I fucking lost my mind. I was like why would you do that? Yeah. I was so angry, like disproportionately yeah. knee-jerk angry because it was like a threat to my sobriety in a way because you need to, it's all or nothing, right? Yeah. It, especially in those yeah. early years, you need yeah. to be 100% committed to what you're doing and know that's the thing you're doing. To hear other stories isn't helpful and that's kind of what AA is about isn't it it's about well if you leave these rooms if you don't keep coming you're going to be like them out there who drank again and they're in prison they're dead or they're in the mental institute and you you do have to believe I understand that rhetoric so I am wary about talking Mm. about this to people who are sober I guess that yeah because it won't work for everyone no that's right I mean and that's the thing In, in the rooms we do get to hear you know it quite often and most often ends in jails, institutions and death, right? That's but what you hear, yeah. That's what you hear, but it, like, that's why I was so intrigued to talk to you, right? Because I, I want to talk to as many different people as possible. And after reading your book, it was it was obvious to me that you and I had very similar pathways to, to many different degrees. Now, I was at the tram the other day, the light rail in Sydney, and I was listening to your audio book and they, there was something you said in your book that, I, it, it floored me and I, I had to sit down. We, if, we often hear the phrase, alcohol is cunning, baffling and powerful. And in your book, you say, take away the word alcohol and put your mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, because I got my responsible service of alcohol and those people, uh, certificate, those of you not in Australia, means I can legally serve alcohol, right? To be, and I was the only person that was sober that got, I had to have it for a, a barbershop that I worked in. I did some yeah. some um, consulting with, but because I was physically in the building, I had to have it, right, because they served alcohol in there. And I looked at all this alcohol on the shelf and by itself caused me no harm whatsoever, right? It doesn't. It's not got any special magic voodoo powers that's going to talk me into, you know, drink me, talk to me. That's my mind, right? And it's yeah. like I sat down and I'm like, yeah, it's my mind is cunning, baffling and powerful. 
my mind is the one that's going to tell me, oh, you're okay now, Clive. I think you'll be, you could do this. Um, yeah, yeah. And do you want to talk a yeah. bit about that? Because I found that that was brilliant. Yeah, and look, it's been seven years for me now of of like non-problematic drinking in my view. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that could change. I yeah. could be, I could have egg on my face in a year's time, who knows? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, look, I think, I don't know, I just did so much. I did so much looking into this. I, I I went to things like the harm minimization kind of groups like Smart Recovery. I went to abstinent yep. groups like AA. I read every book under the sun. I did the therapy. Um, and I just felt like I was in a good place and like this was something I could tackle. I wouldn't mind bringing up my smoking theory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> now, this won't apply to everyone, but um, if you smoke uh, – Basically, uh, there are studies of cross-reinforcement that indicate, I'm reading this, you can tell, indicate that alcohol and nicotine potentiate each other's rewarding effects. In other words, they make each other more effective. They make your brain light up more and more together. And so the only time I have noticed my drinking go, woo, is sometimes like, because I used to smoke, sometimes if I'm at a gathering, and I see someone like rolling a cigarette, if I get tempted and I ask them to roll me one, suddenly alcohol becomes a billion times more potent and attractive. Like one really does activate the other. So um, I, you know, I think if I were a smoker now and I was trying to drink moderately as well, that would be really problematic. And I was actually reading a 2022 paper um, and it said estimates indicate that more than 85% of alcoholics are also nicotine dependent. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny, right? Because my wife stopped drinking 10 months after I did. And that was purely because she didn't believe I was going to stop drinking. And when I got to 10 months, she decided that she was going to stop in support. But she also identified that she may. I mean, we just we were just like Bonnie and Clyde. We would stir each other. You know, of course. You know, on and... It's interesting because even the alcohol-free wine, right? If she smells mm. a red wine that smells remotely like real wine, she'll go. She says, "I can't drink that because that's going to make me want to have a cigarette." And my wife yeah, is one of these right. people that will only smoke if she had a glass of wine. And she would, she would, and I'm a, I was a big smoker, like a pack a day, and she would smoke all my cigarettes in a night, sitting in the garden over a bottle of wine with her mate, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting fact about your book. I read something not long after the sitting down on the tram stop incident um, where it was like cunning, baffling and powerful. There's a thing in your book that says people that are in recovery from substance are most likely to more, more often going to die. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here from a smoking related illness because they try to find the dopamine hit out of the tobacco after they quit drinking. Now, that has certainly been me. Now, after, and it's no secret to anyone that listens to this podcast that I have been through certain periods of this, since we've started this podcast, of starting counting days, of stopping smoking. Since I read that, I haven't had a cigarette and I'm on week three. <laughs> I'm so fucking thrilled for you. That is amazing. I'm on week three and I'm like, every time I go, and it does cross my mind. In fact, this yeah, well, morning. We're talking about it now. Is it making your mind go ding, ding? Well, this morning, the first thing that happened, I mean, I haven't had a cigarette for three weeks. When I opened up my eyes this morning in bed and I'm like, what day is it? What am I doing? Where am I? What am I? And I'm like, oh, I need a cigarette. 
And I'm like, oh, you're, <laughs> you're three weeks, three weeks without one, Clive. Um, and then so I, re- I remind myself that, you know, when, it, when you say, that's one of the beautiful things about your book, the facts and the, the, the numbers in there are, are just so brilliant. And I'll keep going back to it. But the research that you've gone into this book is phenomenal. Well, I think as well, people just need to be aware that please don't beat yourself up all the time because we're never going to completely nail everything, right? And when you quit something, other things are going to rise up in their place. They just are, right? So um, it could be cigarettes, could be vaping, uh, could be sex, could be gambling. Muay Thai boxing. uh, Muay Thai boxing. (laughs) Yeah, lots of people get into ultra running and stuff. Um, Yeah. I, I actually got into something I didn't even notice for a while. I write about it in the book, which was it was when you could still get over the counter codeine. I forgot, I forget what it was exactly. Yeah. I decided, okay, I've got a festival coming up. This is when I was newly sober. I've got to be there for three days in company. I'm really bad in company. What am I going to do? I'm just going to allow myself to have these like a the occasional pill of these over-the-counter things to take the edge off. It's over-the-counter, it's fine. Anyway, three months later, I couldn't figure it out. I was constantly itching. I was constantly feeling tired and ill. And I had to move desks at work at one point. And I opened the bottom drawer and there were all these packets of this drug, whatever it was. And um, all half opened. And I realized I'd been every day going to work and realizing I didn't have a packet I'll just stop at this chemist on the way to work and buy another one but I had this blind spot so that, that I was doing it or at least doing it so often yeah. so these things can really rise up and I just can't drive home enough just don't beat yourself up yeah you know, these things happen they happen to everyone the worst thing you can do is just live in a state of I'm also going to be really hard on myself and punish myself all the time yeah I mean and I guess that's the thing is it's like the smoking situation for me I've had to remind myself, if you just have one cigarette, Clive, you, as you've done thousands of times before, like the, where I work, there's one of my mates smokes outside his shop a bit further down. And if I see him, I'm like, oh, I can't go out there because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want one. And he'll give me one as well. And because mm. um, you know, I'll ask for it and he's not going to turn me down. Um, yeah, but yeah. I know that, I know that um, you know, if I have one, then on the way home, I think, oh, that was nice. I think I'll get another packet. Now, here's another little analogy as well. Just shows you how I remind myself of how I can easily go into going, take everything to the extreme. I recently flew over to Perth to visit my daughter, to do an event with my business partner that lives in Perth. When I got to Perth, there's a three hour time difference and the neck, and I didn't sleep very well uh, when I got to Perth. um, And I was in the shopping center the next day. I walked into the chemist and I said to the chemist, can you do you have anything that's like over the counter that's just going to help me go to sleep and he gave me the the generic brand of this particular national pharmacy that you have in Australia and he said just take one I said I've look I've just flown I knew, you know you know what to say right like when you're doctor shopping I said like, I've just flown over from the eastern states I'm, I just need someone to help me sleep I've got I'm only here for a few days well there was I think there was 30 in the packet I took 29 29 days in a row <laughs> right <laughs> right 29 because I couldn't go to bed without having that oh that was nice I had a really good sleep like I love that sleep and then what I found was after 29 days of taking this over-the-counter sleeping tablet that I was all of a sudden irrational I was 
I was walking zombie, to be honest with you. I had zero tolerance for anybody around me because I was short-tempered. And mm. I'm like, ah, oh, maybe, just maybe it might be. And I've still got one left, right, in the in my bedside door. And it keeps winking and talking at me sometimes. It's like, you know, you, and I'm thankfully I fall asleep. But there are those amongst that will say, well, Clive, that's not really technically. And, but as you say, I'm not going to beat myself up. But it's a big reminder to me that, one one for me is hard work, right? Because mm. stopping stopping at one is almost an impossibility. So, honestly, yeah. I think a lot of people who are sober aren't always technically sober. For, just anecdotally, from things yeah. I've heard, they may not yeah. be drinking, but something else is going on too often. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, we're all we're all where we are. Yeah, we don't have to compare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like even as, as as I quite often, many people joke, you put a packet of Tim Tams in front of me, not only will I eat them, deny all knowledge of no, it's seeing them, but I'll help you look for them as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, um, uh, tell us a little bit about, and are you allowed to talk about your up and coming book that you're coming up out with is with the extreme sports people or not? Oh, that's out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's one called Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, Why Some of Us Push Our Bodies to Extremes. And it basically came off the back of Women of Substances because I was thinking about those all or nothing people who uh, probably, you know, were into drugs, but then switched that for something else. Like I mentioned earlier, ultra running, uh, marathon running, long distance running, loads of people who give up drugs and alcohol get into that. Don't worry if you haven't. That's no judgment. I'm just saying some people have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And in my book, I interviewed people like deathmatch wrestlers who throw themselves onto like barbed wire and beds of nails. I interviewed uh, porn stars, record-breaking porn stars, people who hang from flesh hooks, you know, flesh hook suspension, fighters, wrestlers. I've said wrestlers. Um, but there was a lot of things in common, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of them had ADHD. Yeah. Um, lots of them had a, a paths of addiction. And yeah. they had just found a super productive way. I know a lot of people would find it uh, insane, some of the things they were doing. But for them, they'd found some, something to, to cha- channel their restlessness. Because I think most people who have problems with drugs and alcohol have anxiety they have like a sense of agitation. They have a sense of restlessness. They have all this energy and they fucking need to turn the volume down on it. And that's why mm. they're using substances. Yeah. So um, this book kind of looks at people who've just found these very inventive ways to channel that energy. Yeah, amazing. I remember you telling me on, on a previous phone call about, was it the the elder guy, the older guy that was the crack cocaine addict? And he was the ultra runner. I mean, yeah. Which yeah, he's kind world of famous. World famous ultra runner, and I was talking to him. He's so eloquent. His name's Charlie Engel. He's written a book, um, and he used to buy crack cocaine in you know in, in neighbourhoods where he'd end up getting robbed. He had his car shot at. Um, Love it. Gave it up. Got into ultra running. Like, and no ultra run can even hold him. He has to invent his own. Uh, and wow. He said to me, the similarities between that and the drug use are this constant need for validation. Yeah. You want people to be shocked and impressed or at least shocked. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, oh, my God, you're going to run four days across the Sahara. To him is the same as people going, oh, my God, you're not going to smoke that much, are you? Um, yeah. But there's also this sense of self-flagellation and how far can I push my body? This yeah. kind of bloody-mindedness, you know, 
treatment of your body. So there, there are lots of similarities there. Brilliant. And uh, I'm going to touch on this one. Your podcast, what you do with Frank, it's brilliant. Um, and for those of you who haven't discovered this podcast, and congratulations on you just hit some some good numbers as well. Um, mm. And on your podcast, it's called Spirit Levels. You do it with your partner, Frank. I think it's brilliant. I think it's funny. And you was it your pressure test the wellness industry, right? Yeah. So I'm. I've always been really interested in like healing, wellness, fitness, but also really cynical. Uh, yeah. So like years ago, I did this blog called New Age Guinea Pig, where I would try all sorts of theta healing and Reiki and yeah. Scientology yeah. tests and all that. Uh, kind of acknowledging that I'm very cynical about it and have a very critical mind about it, but I'm also drawn to it because we all need something to fill that void. So it's kind of looking at that tension. Um, and so we've, we're kind of doing the same thing with the podcast. Like every episode, we're doing things like um, tantra, ecstatic dancing, peptides, naturism, ASMR, um, all sorts of things, uh, looking at spiritual life coaching. Uh, and I'm usually the more cynical one, and Frank's the one who's sort of more of a kind of wide-eyed, open-minded guy. It's really good. It's really, and, and I've loved Thank listening you. to it, and especially the social media thing as well. It's funny, I'm, this is a bizarre story, but I was talking to my eldest daughter last night, and she was talking, she'd had to go for a, a, an ultrasound yesterday. And I was telling her about when I went for a colonic, uh, not a colonic, a, um, what's it called? When it's a similar kind of thing when they go and put the camera up your bum, forget what it's called. Oh, yeah, <laughs> colon, colon, colonoscopy. That's yeah. right. And I was so nervous, I joked with the, with the, the doctor said, have you got any questions before we do the procedure? And I, I was so nervous. I said, oh, look, I lost a car key many years ago at a party <laughs> and I, I may have swallowed it. And she just sort of looked at me and just was in complete disgust and and walked off. Anyway, when I saw your wow. social post with the pipe, with the car going down, it, it really made me laugh <laughs> yesterday. I was like, Boy, you oh, don't, yeah. don't realise how, how real that was to me. Um, Jenny... <laughs> It's been really good chatting to you. And for those of you that have not read Woman of Substances and you are thinking of, you know, and I think one of the beautiful things is about this book is, is that I know your road has been very different to, to mine and many others, but one of the things it does do is it starts a conversation. And if you are listening to this podcast for the first time and you are thinking about, you know, if you feel like you've got any kind of addictive behavior, this is not just about drugs and alcohol, it's about you know, anything, codependency, porn, you name it. We've covered gaming. We've covered all the different areas of addiction. And that's one of the beautiful things I found in reading your book, Jenny, was that every chapter was about something else and and along with some, some pretty intense stories of your own life. So it's an amazing read for anyone thinking that, you know, they may have an issue with some, some addiction areas or another there's certainly a lot of facts and figures in there that will probably answer most of your questions but i really appreciate you coming on and chatting to us jenny it's been amazing thanks so much clive it's just so good to have these really in-depth and nuanced conversations about this kind of thing you know yeah well that was the thing i said to my wife this morning and she said clive you look really nervous and i'm like i am because i'm going into an area that um, intrigues me Right, it really intrigues me, and I want to. I want everyone to have a, that freedom of speech and and to tell their their. The whole point of me starting this podcast was to tell my story to start off with, and my story is like many other people's stories. And if you've got a different ending to the one that I'm currently on, that may not be for me or for me, but I think having that conversation 
is really is really healthy because we're not all the same. We're all we're every single person that goes down a form of some kind of addictive behavior. We've got similarities, but you know, we're not all the same. We're like, we're definitely, yeah. and that's why we fall in and out of love with recovery, right? It's a, it's like a long-term relationship. And yeah, there's things about it you love, you know, there's things you love, there's things that drive me up the fucking wall, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just think sometimes there's this us and them attitude in recovery. Like we're not like them out there. And that's just what I would want to tackle, really. Like, everyone's got problems, probably more similar to the, than yours, you might think. But we all have different ways of of handling them and expressing them. So, yeah. you know, it's it's not, we're all the same in here, in the rooms, yeah. and they're all fine. They're all fine out there. And that's the thing. Like, when I got to the final chapter of your book, like, I was like, how's this, where's this going, right? And I, And it just... It answered every question that I had. It said I sat there listening to it while my daughter was on a in a water world park thing, and I'm like, <laughs> I turned around to my wife and I went, "This book's fucking brilliant." I was like, "It's amazing." Like, <laughs> so, oh, so no, nah, it's really good. And you know, I commend you for writing it because there is. I mean, I recommend anyone to go out and listen to it because it's or to to read it um, because it's. It's brilliant and it's some confronting shit in there and it's very real and it's very brutally honest and thanks for doing it and thanks for coming on my pod- or on our podcast. I really appreciate it. I loved it. Thank you so much. No worries. Next time I'm down in Melbourne, I might give you a buzz and we'll meet up and we'll do some ecstatic dancing or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do no, you, you're Sydney, yeah? I'm Sydney, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I'll, All right. I'll take you on the dance floor. I love it. Sounds good. And um, I mean, give, give Frank my best wishes. I heard he's got a bit of a, a rib injury, so all the very best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. All right. Cheers, Jenny. You've been listening to Straight Edge, the podcast, and we love that you've been listening to this episode. And we're always looking for future guests to join us on the podcast. So if you or anyone else, your friends or family have been through similar struggles with any form of addiction or recovery, we'd love to hear from you. Just drop us a message on our Instagram page, Straight Edge, the podcast, and we'll get right back in touch with you to have a chat. And talking of social media, if you've enjoyed this or any other of our episodes from season one or two, We kindly ask for you to please help us share the love by sharing our posts and reels with your own network of friends. And lastly, but most importantly, if you could please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us improve our podcast visibility and hopefully attract more listeners from around the world. But most of all, it will attract some more exciting guests that I'm sure you, our audience, would love to hear from. So I'll finish with a big thank you from all of us here, Amy, Lou and myself, Clive at Straight Edge the Podcast. And please stay safe and God bless.